we read the Word of God together. We've been standing and reading them together, and when we come to today's commandment, the fifth commandment, I want you all to read it aloud with me. Exodus chapter 20, God speaking from the mountain, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So as I said, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, now through the book of Exodus, coming to the Ten Commandments. And friends, we are at every parent's favorite commandment. In fact, some, some parents were excited. They're like, man, we have family worship Sunday. Our kids are going to be in service, right? They're sitting there. They were praying last night. I want the pastor just to dunk on my kids, right? Well, let me say, the Lord's got some dunking to do on all of us as we look at the fifth commandment, because this commandment for many people can conjure up pain and hurt when we think about parents in our own life, or it can be something that we think, well, that applies to little kids, but that doesn't apply to me, right? But let's remember the Ten Commandments are universal law rooted in creation, and it is law that matters to all of us because, friends, every parent is also a child, Every parent has a parent. And as you grow older, you begin to realize that one day the parent who carried you, you may have to carry. And this commandment expands even beyond simply parents to thinking about our grandparents, our step-parents maybe, in-laws, adoptive parents, whoever is responsible for you and is a position of authority over you as a parent. And as we grow and create our own families, this law remains, though it might look a little different. And this command is really meant to teach us all about parenthood and family. And there's so much packed into this. But let's start with really one of the first things I think that's most important to think about the fifth commandment. And it's this. The fifth commandment teaches us that parenthood is meant to be honorable. Friends, so many people want to emphasize the, hey, kids, honor your father and mother. But remember, it's saying parents live in a way worthy of receiving that honor first. 
You know, it's saying, hey, be honorable. That's what the, the fifth commandment starts by telling us. And in fact, it actually reminds us of three reasons, I think, here that parenthood is meant to be honorable and, and sort of some guidance for parents in living out this command. The first thing we got to recognize is that all authorities operate under God's authority. That's one of the first and most important things to realize. Every single authority operates under God's authority. Earthly fathers and mothers have a heavenly father over them. And this is implied by the very order of the commandments. Think about this. We're now at commandment number five before mom and dad get mentioned. Right? Commandment one to four is primarily about our, our vertical relationship with God. And now we come to commandment five, one of the first horizontal commandments concerned with those around us. And it reminds us that every authority, governor, employer, or even parents, have a God over them to which they must answer to. It's a reminder that parents, there is a judgment day coming and you will be, put, will be put before your heavenly father and asked how you stewarded what God gave you. And that's a reason to live honorably. It's possible to consider, it, we must consider what matters most to us with what God has given to us. Let me think about this. You're not ultimately responsible simply to raise good citizens on earth. But parents, you're responsible to raise citizens of heaven who make an impact on earth. Parenthood is a stewardship of authority from the one who has all authority. In other words, it's a reminder that, yes, you may be in charge of your home, but you are not in charge of the world. And that's how you begin to live honorably is realizing, parents, you're not the most important person in the universe. You're not the highest authority to which even your kids have to answer. All authorities operate under God's authority. And that's why... Most commentators throughout history have understood that the fifth commandment reaches beyond simply households to every form of God-established authority and reminds us that God gets our supreme allegiance. And I actually think it's really helpful as people begin to think about, well, we've got all these sort of authorities. We've got government, and we've got parents, and we've got my workplace, and, and, and how do I live with God is the supreme allegiance over all of them. The Bible actually gives us a very helpful case study when, they, when it guides Christians in the first century as to how to live under an unjust government. And we see that the apostles were brought before the council, and they, and they were asked to keep their mouths shut about Jesus. And here's what the apostles said when they were asked to disobey God. Peter and the apostles said this, Acts 5, 29, they said, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, when we come before unjust, when there are authorities that would ask us to disobey the one who is our supreme authority, we say we must obey God rather than men. And this doesn't simply apply, friends, to our government. It would even apply in our home. So friends, ultimately, if we're asked to do something that would disobey and be directly against God's word, we give God the highest authority. Now, students, don't go home and say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't want me to clean my room, right? And kind of begin to use this. Hear me. 
This isn't an open call to disobey your parents in the name of Jesus because obedience to God will often mean obedience to your parents when they ask you to keep your curfew, to clean your room, to do the dishes, to do what your parents ask over the place God has placed them in authority. But it does remind us that God is to have our supreme authority over all and our supreme allegiance. Here's the second thing the fifth commandment teaches us, particularly as it relates to parents. It teaches us that family is fundamental. Family is fundamental. God puts the fifth commandment here to tell us about the value of family. Think of all the things when you're just thinking about the Ten Commandments God has not even mentioned yet. And yet he puts the family here right in the big ten. Think about this. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 2 that's cited in your notes there. When God made man and woman, he put them in the garden and then immediately put them in the family. Before government existed, before any other institution, God made the family first. The family is fundamental. Your closest neighbor is likely the family you live with. We always think of the neighbor as the guy next door, but friends, your neighbor is the person in the kitchen or in the room next door to you first. And likely for many of you, the nearest Christian you live with is your family. And while the church is called the household of faith, most of the commands of the Bible are first and foremost lived out in our families. Think about the command to put up with one another. Friends, that's got to be lived out in your own home, right? Think about it this way. If you won't obey honorable, godly, parental authorities, what makes you think you're going to obey your heavenly father when life gets a little tough and he asks you to do something you don't want to do? Friends, we all know the famous saying, you can't, you'll never change the world if you don't start by changing the toilet paper. Here's the point. The home is a microcosm of the universe, and how we live in our homes is a picture of how we're going to live in the world. Parents, let me, let, me, let me ask it this way. Let me say it this way. I've, I've dunked on the kids. Let me turn to the parents here a little bit. If you won't show patience and ask forgiveness from your spouse or your kids when you're wrong, what makes you think you're going to do it in the stranger down the seat from you? If you're not going to ask for prayer from your kids and be open and vulnerable, don't, don't come here and act like, well, I'm looking for an authentic community. You're not going to live in an authentic community if you don't have an authentic community in the four walls that you're responsible for. Faith starts at home. And this is why we need to make sure our faith is more than just a couple hours a week. But it's meant to permeate our life. Family is fundamental. And this is why attempts to redefine the family in our day is such a big deal. It's redefining a core establishment that God instituted. And there's so much brokenness in our world, but God defines the family. The ideal is mother, father, under God, serving and raising children to know and love the world. And if that isn't what you have, let me tell you, God's grace is enough when the ideal may not be there. Friends, how we walk and live in our family, though, is meant to reach beyond us. Let me tell you the third Thing that the fifth that the fifth commandment's here to tell us. The fifth commandment teaches us that family has a generational impact. 
Look at the fifth commandment again. Look at this. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You see the last part? <laughs> Honor your father and mother because if the family falls apart, life in the land was going to fall apart. Friends, obviously this is speaking in the immediate context about that land Israel was going to inherit, right? They were going to inherit the land that they were going to go into, but the principle still stands. How you raise your family is going to have generational impacts beyond you. We all know the impact of sinful mothers and fathers, of generational breakdowns, of young men and women without fathers, mothers, love, care, or discipline. Let me encourage parents here today. If you want to change the world, don't run for president. If you want to change the world, don't start a nonprofit. If you want to change the world, be a good parent. That's how you begin to change the world. The fifth commandment is a word to parents before it is a word to kids. Be honorable. Pursue after the Lord. Don't assume that just because your children are commanded to honor you, that means you can and, and that means you can be and do whatever you want. But now let's consider the application of the command when we think about children to parents. This is probably the question I get more than any other. You know, when I think about the Ten Commandments, just a practical question. People ask me this, how do we honor our parents? How am I supposed to do this? They'll, they'll be like, Pastor, you've met them. <laughs> I won't tell you who said that. You can ask later, right? On that. But how do we do that? Specifically, people are generally more concerned about how to honor parents who are less than ideal. And let me give you some principles I hope are helpful. It's hard because I can't walk into every situation. I can't pull out the black couch from the back room and you lay down and we do this counseling session up in front of everybody. It's probably not the right place uh, to do that. But I hope these principles will help regardless of where your situation might find yourself. Because whether you're zero or 99, you are called to honor your parents. Whether your parents are living or, or past and with the Lord, you are called to honor your parents. Whether you live with them or you don't live with them, you are called to honor your parents. Did you know even if you're married and moved out of the house, there's still a responsibility to honor your parents? This is for everybody. Let me give you first a central principle and then sort of some principles that flow out of that. Here's the central principle. If you want to begin to think is what I'm about to do honoring to my parents. Think about it this way. We are to love our parents as we love ourselves, or love your parents as you love yourself. <coughs> Would this be loving? Would this be loving if it happened to me? No, then I should not do it to another. Friends, this is just the second greatest commandment, isn't it? Jesus said this, Matthew 22, 39, the second commandment, the second greatest commandments, like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's taken right out of the book of Leviticus. The thrust of the, set of the fifth commandment is love your parents as you love yourself. Let me just remind you, your parents are if you live with them, your closest neighbor, they literally are in the room down the hall. But friends, they're also likely your longest neighbor. 
Nobody's probably known you longer than your parents have. So if you're struggling with how to honor them, just take the Bible verses of what it talks about with your neighbors and begin to apply it to your parents. And then people will stop me here and go, but Matt, you don't know what they did. And you're right, I, I don't. But God does. And he's told us to love even the unlovable because he has loved us. In fact, the Bible tells us that in one sense, honor is due to everybody. Let me show you that. 1 Peter 2.17. Look at this. Honor everyone. Pretty straightforward, right, Peter? He doesn't have a little star down, at least not in my Bible. There's not a star next to everyone that goes down and says, accept your parents, right? Honor everyone. In fact, let me give the kiddos in the room. I know we've got them here today. How many of you are kind of competitive? A couple of you are going to respond. There we go. Let me give you a competition to do when you get home today. I want you to do the Romans 12.10 challenge. Let me show you Romans 12.10. Look at this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let me encourage you and your siblings to kind of make it a competition to show honor to your parents, to love one another with brotherly affection. So that means stop fighting over the Legos or whatever it might be, right? And make a competition out of showing honor to one another. And then come back to me next week and tell me who of you has done the most honoring of your parents. And just remember, I'll ask them how it went, right? But the Bible encourages us to outdo one another in showing honor, to love our parents as we love ourselves. And so let me offer you five uh, practical steps to take this big principle down. First, we honor our parents by when we listen and learn even from their mistakes. Honoring begins when we listen and learn even from their mistakes. Let me point you over to the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. And it says this, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. He says, listen to them. They do know a thing or two. Your parents might have been born at night, but they were not born Writes, they do know a thing or two, both good and bad. You can learn from their life and their teaching, not just things they told you, but also how they lived. Both are meant to be instructive because you don't have to repeat the sins and mistakes of your parents. But God would invite you to have open eyes, open ears, open heart, and be ready to learn, to observe, to listen. And I remember where I was as a young child, the moment that this clicked in my head. Some of you know, I grew up not knowing my earthly father. And my older brother, he had a relationship with his dad. It was a different dad situation. And a few times a year, mom would take brother over for the holidays and drop him off at a dad's family get-together, right? Because she still wanted to keep some semblance of a relationship there, but man, my brother's dad, just to be frank, was an abusive drunk. Terrible, terrible guy. And I remember we would pick him up. We would either have brother come out, or sometimes I, for some reason, got sent in to go get him. Um, and everybody had, let's say, had a bit too much fun that evening at the family get-together. And I remember seeing 
his dad stumble out, be threatening, stand over the car. This is the big guy, stand over the car, and just be generally unpleasant. I remember committing as a young child, sitting there going, I am never going to allow myself to do that. To follow in that pattern. And you must commit to know something better. No matter what path your earthly father walked, your heavenly father has a better path for you to walk. There is a better way. But you got to walk in it and you got to learn and look and see the mistakes that occurred. But in the meantime, as we listen and we learn, what else are we to do? Let's look at point two. We're to respect the position, not necessarily their practice. Respect the position, not necessarily their practice. We talked about this a little bit ago, but I want to look at it a little bit again. We're called in, in the Bible to honor the position of governor or president, even if we disagree with them, to honor our leaders. And friends, I think we can take this right down to honoring our parents without necessarily honoring everything that they say or do. Look over here with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Look at this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do, who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. God's will is that we seek to honor them. And he says, honoring authorities that are over you that might be less than ideal, he says, that's actually a way to silence the ignorance of others. You are free in Christ from the outside commands of this world. But he says, don't use your freedom to do evil, to speak ill, but rather live as servants of God. And friends, when he says honor the emperor, we think, believe me, the emperors in the ancient days were as wicked as they come. And it's important to notice he doesn't say affirm everything the emperor says. Friends, our culture has gone wild to think that we can't honor someone as a person if we don't affirm every decision or everything they might think or believe. We are able to honor a position without honoring practices. He doesn't say honor them by enabling them to do you harm. In fact, sometimes distance can be the most honoring thing you can give. But he does say to honor, to seek to be subject where possible, and to seek to do good to them and not harm, and to live as servants of God. Let me give you a third way to honor your parents. Look at this, to honor father and mother. Three, esteem their hard work. Esteem their hard work. That's actually the word Paul uses. Look at the Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We should highly esteem those who work hard for us. And friends, if you have a parent who works hard, not to just provide a house, but to make a house 
a home, and there are a, there's a major difference between a house and a home. Friends, if you have someone who does that, you have much to esteem and love and celebrate. And notice the work here includes labor, but also admonishment. And the main context of this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 is church leadership. But I think it's also a model of anybody who is sort of over us and responsible for us. And if you have someone who works hard, who's willing to tell you the truth in love, you should esteem them highly in love. And to whom much is given, Jesus would tell us, much is required. And it can be difficult at times. There's often, one of the things I often will counsel with people about, the topic of their parents will come up. This happened, that happened. And it can be very hard sometimes to discern the difference between trauma and thanklessness. It can be very hard sometimes because I'm only getting one side of the story, right? I'm only getting one side. It can be hard to tell. There is real drama. That, there's real trauma that can come from parents. Don't mishear me. There's terrible people who do terrible things, but there are also real problems with people not being thankful, and that comes with maturity, thankfulness for the hard work of parents, thankful that they didn't let you do whatever you wanted to do. Not to say that they're perfect, but that they were faithful to fulfill the role in front of them. Friends, let me tell you this. Folks of all ages, wherever you find yourself, one of the best things you can do to apply this sermon today is when you get in the car or when you get home, call up your parent or if you came here with your parent, turn to them and Thank them for their work and their sacrifice. Thank you are two of the most simple, if done sincerely, are two of the most powerful ways to show honor to someone. And one of the best ways to esteem your parents. And one of the opportunities we all get to esteem our parents typically comes in the final years of their life. Friends, because parenthood comes with a sense of irony, doesn't it? One day, the parents who held you in their arms and took care of you will require you to hold them and take care of them. Life often comes full circle, and providers need to become the ones provided for. And let me just remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 5, 8. Look at this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, Paul. <laughs> Paul wants to remind us, friends, there may come a time when you have to open your house, your wallet, or your arms in care for your parents, whether due to old age or tragedy. Friends, it might even require you to move closer to be able to care for them. Some people are always searching for God's will. God's will might be you stay right where you are and care for your parents in need while, they, while, they're, while they're here, while you can. God calls us, calls us to care for our family. And as our parents sacrifice for us, we may have to sacrifice for them. In fact, Jesus even models this, doesn't he? In his darkest moments, as he's up on the cross, he made provisions for his mother. Jesus was the, was the only perfect, sinless child. I know all of you think your little babies are perfect. Jesus was actually perfect, right? Imagine having a sinless teenager, and he actually was a sinless teenager. I can't imagine that, right? 
And his parents weren't, per weren't perfect. We actually read in the book of Luke, they left him at the temple. So parents, if you ever lost your kid at Walmart, you're up there with Mary and Joseph. You're doing okay, right? They lost him at the temple. And look what Jesus did. This didn't come by Jesus' hand, but by his word. As he's on the cross and his clothes are being divided, this happens. John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, this is a very tender term he's using for woman. It's not woman. It's, it's, it's a very tender term for a woman. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Friends, Jesus is deeply suffering. Certainly, none of us would fault him as he's hanging on the cross for not thinking about his mama for a moment. Yet he sees Mary standing there next to John. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, John, take care of her for me. Jesus wouldn't be able to care for Mary when she was old, so he made provision for her. And so, friends, if you have elderly parents, do you see it as your job, first and foremost, to provide for them? Again, this can look a lot of different ways. Jesus had John help, and you may need the help of others, of hospice care, of home health, of all kinds of things to be able to help you with that. But do we see it as an act of honor to provide for our parents in the midst of their needs to esteem them for their hard work? Now, I know there's many of us who maybe don't have parents or maybe we have one who just, we, we wouldn't say we could esteem very highly. They've caused trauma. They, they're, they're difficult. How do we deal with difficult family situations? Let me give you two principles as the last two for us to think about. First, seek peace where possible. Seek peace where possible. This is one of my favorite Bible verses. I love this. Romans 12, 18. This is great. I love this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love that. The, the two phrases prior to the command are my favorite part. If possible, sometimes it's not. As far as it depends on you, sometimes that, that's not possible. Sometimes you've done everything you can do. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This might mean going to family dinner and not bringing up the point of contention, whatever that is. This might mean working because peace requires work on everybody's part. And we often want peace without having to do any work of our own. We want everyone else to do the work, but that isn't how peace in this world works. I also want to say some of you have done everything in your power to keep the peace, and yet it still feels chaotic, doesn't it? It feels like your life's a reality show that you didn't sign up for, right? Let me encourage you this. If you have done everything you can to pursue peace, then friends, be at peace. If you've done everything you can to pursue peace, Romans 12, 18 would say, be at peace. You've done everything you can do. Because there are times when there is nothing else you can do. And trust God for peace when there isn't any other way. And peace, finally, only is possible by extending 
grace. And grace can only be extended once it's first received. Here's the last point. We need to give the grace you have received. It's one of the most important principles I could give you. I know this is hard for a lot of us to hear. You've been hurt. Some possibly even abused or neglected. But friends, bitterness will never make you better. And grace is able to heal wounds within, and forgiveness enables you to forge ahead. Let me say I know there's going to be people that are going, you don't understand, and, and I don't. I don't know your situation, but I want, to, I want you to hear from someone who does. And he has words of hope and life for you. One day, Peter came up to Jesus. And you already know it's going to be good when Peter's coming up, right? And here's what Peter says. This is Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter had some sort of hurt. We don't know if he's meaning his literal brother or his brother in the faith. It doesn't really matter. This isn't a stranger because a stranger who hurts you is easier to forgive. But this is someone... He knows and loves and cares for, and he's been hurt. And he says, how often can I forgive? And he says, seven times. And friends, the rabbis in this day, in Jesus' day, taught you could forgive someone three, maybe four times, but after that, you don't have to forgive them. And so Peter takes that and doubles it and says, well, what about, what about seven times? That seems pretty generous, right, Jesus? But I also believe Peter may have been looking for a reason to hold a grudge. And look at Jesus' response. Matthew 18, 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or your Bible may say seven times, 70 times. This isn't meant to be a number we can achieve, but rather it's, it's the perfect number. Seven is the perfect number. And it's to say, take that to the most perfect degree. In other words, Jesus is saying, we forgive the innumerable amount of sins committed against us. To not hold it against others. And friends, to have grace without limits and without exception. This isn't a free pass to allow someone to abuse you or to use you further. Again, those other principles, I think, inform that. But it is an invitation to let go of the inward bitterness and to stop being the prosecuting attorney for somebody else in a situation. To stop constantly reminding yourself of their guilt and what they did to you, but rather to become an advocate for prayer on their behalf. And Jesus responds to all of this with a parable. And we don't have time to look at all the parable. You can look at it in Matthew 18 when you're curious. But in this parable, we've got a king and his servants, and the king's servant owed the king money. And in those days, if you owe someone money and you can't pay it back, they have to work for you as a servant to settle the debt. But the king desires to forgive his servants of their debts. The servant comes before him, and we're told that he owed the king ten thousand talents. Now, talents in that day, that's the largest unit of measurement they had or largest unit of money they had. And a talent was equivalent to around 20 years worth of wages. Friends, it's tax time, right? So when you get, you know, your W-2, whatever you get, look at the amount you brought in, times it by 20 and realize that's what he owed this guy, right? 
This was a truly incomprehensible amount of money, up there with the amount the federal government owes, right? But this is one guy. This is a lot of money. And the king brings him forward, and he begins, and, and, the, and the servants going, hey, I'm going to be sentenced, me and my whole family, to a life of servanthood. And the servant begs for patience. Give me more time to pay off the insurmountable debt. And here's the incredible thing. The servant asks for patience, but the king gives him pardon. Forgives it full and free. He takes the loss upon himself to let the man go. He doesn't hold his sin against him. And, and it's likely he probably wasn't going to loan the guy money again, right? But he lets him go. The king let it go, and he let the servant go. But then the story takes a turn. The forgiven servant seeks out a man who owed him money. This time, it tells us about 100 denarii, which is around three months' wages. A good amount of money, but nothing in comparison to what he was forgiven, right? The servant didn't forgive the man who owed him money, and he actually began to choke him and had him thrown in jail for the three months that was owed to him. And the parable ends with the king getting word of this. He summons the servant before him, and he asks this powerful question. Look at this, Matthew 18, 33. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see it? And the man, instead of ending up as a servant, gets thrown to the jailer until he should pay back every debt. And every parable has a punchline, a point. Here's Jesus' point, Matthew 18, 35. And so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Unforgiveness put the servant in prison. But our heavenly Father calls us to forgive from our hearts and experience freedom. And the only way to forgive is to realize how much you have been forgiven. Ephesians chapter 4 puts it this way. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4 is a great measure when you think about forgiveness, because it's saying, hey, am I still bitter do I still hold wrath and anger? Do I still seek to slander and hurt their reputation? Then, friends, you have not forgiven them. On the other side, you pursue with the best of your ability to be kind to those who hurt you, tender-hearted, to forgive their debts as our debts have been forgiven. Friends, God calls us to give the grace we have received. And the denarii of hurt you have received is nothing compared to the 10,000 talents of sin we have committed against God. We've been walking through the law to see this, right? We've broken every one of those commandments. Some of us have done that today. And yet the mercy and grace of God far exceeds our sin. God has forgiven us far greater than the sin that has been committed against us. And God took the loss upon himself. He gave his son and put him on the cross to pay for the debt and to rise again from the dead so that we might not be met with justice and wrath, but with mercy. 
And since we've been shown such mercy, should we not extend it to others? And if our Heavenly Father has shown us such mercy, can't we extend the same to our earthly mother and father? Because, friends, you're only hurting you by hanging on to it. You're only walking in the pattern that they might have walked by doing that. And shouldn't it strike us as incredible that regardless of how your earthly parents may have been, we have a Father in Heaven who is incomprehensible, infinite in love and mercy and compassion. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here's the point. If you have honorable parents, let that be a testimony to how much better your heavenly father is than they are. And if you had less than ideal parents, let this encourage you. Your heavenly father is everything they never were. And parents coming from less than ideal circumstances, let me encourage you, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. That even if it's not how you dreamed it would be, God honors faithfulness, not ideals. Seek to be faithful regardless of where you come from or what situation you're in, and God will meet you right where you are. But you must come through Jesus, through his Son, so that we would no longer be estranged by sin, but be adopted and rooted in God's family. Let me close here. In these next few moments, there are a number of ways you can respond. We're going to respond first by worshiping the Lord. And, you're, and the children here are going to have an opportunity to worship with us in an incredible way here in a few moments. But let me invite you to respond however the Lord might be leading you. Some of us simply need to respond with thanksgiving for the incredible blessing and in parents that God has given us. Friends, let me tell you something. You had nothing to do with the parents you got. That's all grace if you got them. So to give thanks not only to them, but to the incredible Heavenly Father who's adopted us into his family. For others, we need to surrender in our war against our parents. We need to bury the past and trust that Jesus is the one who takes dead things to new and better and everlasting life. You need to let it go. And maybe you need to come forward. I'll be up front here if you need someone to pray with you or after service to pray with you. But I'll tell you, the prayer asking God to help you forgive is a scary prayer because that's one of those ones he's going to answer. But we've got to be ready for him to answer. And finally, some of us need to experience forgiveness for the, long, for the first time. To no longer have our sins held against us, but that we might receive the righteousness of God credited to our account through Christ out of sheer mercy and grace. The servant in the parable didn't deserve it. He simply begged for patience and the king gave him pardon. And today, if you need pardon from your sin, Jesus is ready to receive you. And you need to come forward. You can pray with me. You can pray where you're at. You can ask God to help you because the pathway to freedom is not chaining yourself to bitterness to the past, but rather abiding in your heavenly Father and the glorious saving work of his Son. Let us stand and sing and respond to our Father's word together. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are good to us. You have loved us far greater than any earthly parent ever could or ever will, and we're thankful for that. And God, I pray in these next moments, there are some who are holding on to bitterness in their life because of what their parents did or didn't do. 
And I pray you would cause them to let go of that bitterness right now. They would release it to you. They would lay their anxieties upon you because the scripture says you care for them. And you're able to set them free from the prison of bitterness and sin and hurt. I pray for others today that they come maybe for the first time to know you, God, not as a distant creator, but as an intimate father who loves them and who gave his only son that they might have new and everlasting life. Whatever we need to do in these next few moments, we ask that you'd be honored and glorified. Let me pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to respond as a family. We're all here together. And kids, if you want to come up here and just sing with us, it's a song that's simple, but it's a simple truth. And the moment Jesus died on that cross, the moment he did that was the moment we saw the depth, the width, and the length of his love. So this is just going to be Jesus loves me. Okay? I just want to read this real quick. Part of Luke 18, where Jesus blesses the children. One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could teach and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Let's all sing together. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. opportunity one it's so good that our families got to worship together on this Sunday wasn't that good thank you for the opportunity and it was great to give our kids crossing servants a break they'll be back uh, next week for some incredible activities there but let me close with a benediction as we head out into this world with a message of forgiveness and hope and grace to offer this from Romans 15 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.